This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is sponsored by the Alliance Defending Freedom Church Alliance. The ADF Church Alliance provides more than 3,200 member churches with legal support for religious freedom issues. For more information, go to adfchurchalliance.org. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I am joined today by Caleb Lindgren, our Theology Editor. Good morning, Caleb. Hi there. You are carrying a mug of hot water. Yeah, um, I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm sort of nursing that. Um, This is your third week of being sick. Yeah, yeah. We can talk about this later a little bit, but uh, I'm in a play, and it's been keeping me up late. So, All right. Well, to be continued at the end of the conversation, who is joining us today, Caleb? Today, we're joined by uh, Dabidi Anyabwile, who is a pastor. He's a pastor of Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C. He's also a member of the Gospel Coalition's Council, and he writes occasionally for them. And then he also is involved with The Front Porch, which is a ministry that is uh, dedicated to encouraging uh, biblical faithfulness, uh, particularly in African-American, but also beyond um, contexts. Uh, so we're really excited to have him on the podcast to talk about our topic. Hey, Tabidi. Hey, Morgan. How are you guys today? I think we're, we're doing pretty well. What's going on in Washington, D.C.? Oh, man. What isn't going on in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting times to be in. It is. Uh, I don't know if it's the the sort of for such a time as this, or if it's the Chinese curse. You know, may you live in interesting times. But in in either case, Christians are are needed to be salt and light. If I recall correctly, you used to live in the Caribbean. Is that true? I did. I lived for eight years in the Cayman Islands. Did you ever wish you could go back? No. <laughs> yeah, there, there have been some moments. Uh, whenever, whenever we get a snow or, or whatever, uh, we hit some of the kinds of cultural currents that, that we've been in these last couple of years. The, the tranquility of the Cayman Islands seems real appealing. <laughs> Actually, I, I came back in 2014, right, right before Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And so that was kind of welcome back to the States for us. Whoa. Man. All right. Well, Tabidi, I'm excited that you're going to be on here today, and it's going to become apparent very quickly to our listeners why we're bringing you in. So let's get into that. Last week, John MacArthur and 12 other Christian leaders launched a website presenting the statement on social justice and the gospel. The signatories claim that the social justice movement endangers Christians with, quote, an onslaught of dangerous and false teachings that threaten the gospel misrepresent scripture, and lead people away from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The statement argues that a secular threat is infiltrating the evangelical church. With 14 points, it addresses cultural narratives, quote, currently undermining scripture in the areas of race and ethnicity, manhood and womanhood, and human sexuality. At the time of this recording, the statement has received around 7,000 signatures. And the statement comes at a time when MacArthur, a prominent California pastor and author, had been preaching a controversial sermon series on social justice. 
So this week on Quick to Listen, we will be discussing the context of MacArthur's remarks and what the firestorm over the statement in his sermon series reveals about evangelicalism today. I do think I should point out, which I did not make explicit, that there has been lots of pushback to this statement. And so we will be discussing that because I don't think I made that explicit just now. So before we get into our discussion today, I want to take the time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And Caleb actually acquires and edits a lot of the pieces that we end up running in the magazine. And so, you know, what was there one that was particularly meaningful to you or interesting to you, this issue? Yeah, actually, um, there are a number of them. I was involved with quite a few this time around. Not all the time, but this time around I was. Um, and in particular, I wanted to highlight uh, an article that's in our cover package titled, Who is My Digital Neighbor? It's by James Eglinton, who's a theology who's working out of the U.K., his argument in this thing is uh, basically, as the subtitle suggests, it's a Christian call to reject polarized political discourse. And what he's arguing for is that um, in an age where there's a lot of hashtags and hot takes and kind of uh, quick off-the-cuff remarks, that we ought to be um, thinking about what loving our neighbor means in a digital environment with that much polarization. He says, uh, to become a neighbor is necessarily to deny that you and those like you are the most important individuals in this world. And, you know, looking at the greatest commandment, um, love God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself, who's your neighbor? Well, your neighbor is probably the person you disagree with and that you're angry at on Twitter or something like that. Um, or even just the person down the street who, you know, you don't get along with very well. I thought it was a really refreshing take, and I think it has a lot to do with what we're talking about. All right. So if you would like to read this piece that Caleb just mentioned, you can do that by becoming a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine. That's possible by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. So, Caleb, you've been on the show a couple times now, so I think you know that we do something called a gut check, which is when you and I give our reactions to the news that's going on. Yeah. All right. Let's take it away. What do you, what'd you make of all the stuff that's happening? Well, to be perfectly honest, when I when I saw the statement, um, which was the first I'd heard about, I had not heard about MacArthur's sermon series that was making waves. I had to sort of suppress a sigh. It, it, it seemed like an expected move from the folks that were initial signatories. Um, and I wasn't necessarily opposed to anything that the statement stated directly in a lot of ways, but it did feel like a fairly, it felt like it fit very much with their style. And um, and I also knew that the reaction was probably going to be similar to what it has been. It was sort of like, all right, well, let's see how this plays out. Let's see how people handle this. Um, but my major, you know, gut level reaction was just like, oh, here we go again. This is kind of expected. Yeah, I guess my reaction was I know that not all of our listeners have ever heard of John MacArthur before, and I am not super closely familiar with him, but I did have some friends that went to the Christian college that he is the founder and president of, um, which is Master's College in California. And everything that I'd understood was that this school and the stuff that John MacArthur stood for was going to be more on the conservative evangelical wing of things. And so I guess it didn't necessarily surprise me that John MacArthur would come out with some of these takes that might feel a little bit more hostile to whatever the social justice movement is, whatever, what we're going to talk about what that is exactly. But I, I didn't necessarily get why people were as worked up given that it didn't seem out of line or beyond the pale for what I would think he would be addressing or talking about. But I think we should talk to Tapiti about this because he's much closer to this situation than we clearly are. 
Tabidi, before we get into all your opinions, which we really want to hear, can you start by kind of like summarizing MacArthur's sermon series from the past month and give us a sense of like what sparked the sermon series a little bit? Yeah, alongside the sermon series, um, John's written a, a blog post series uh, on social justice and the gospel. It's about a five-part series. And in the first or second of those posts, John sort of says he's been watching social justice in recent years, over the last four or five years, come onto the stage in a very sudden and surprising way, with divisive effects in the church along racial lines and division over racism. Uh, he represents himself as being you know, quite surprised or stunned at the pace and the ferocity of that development as he sees it. And so the, the sermon series, in one sense, is born out of that concern, his reaction to what he describes as a recent development, and his concern for protecting the gospel. And specifically, the two sermons in Ezekiel 18, he, he really is sort of contending for a, a main principle, using the words that Ezekiel uses, the soul that sins shall die. And he's arguing for individual accountability before God and the necessity of individuals to repent for their own sins, not the sins of others, not the sins of culture, not the sins of institutions, but their own personal sins uh, as the only means of turning to God and being saved. And he's, he's rejecting the notion that things like social justice or racial reconciliation, etc., uh, can be sort of front-end issues, necessary issues to resolve or to engage in before one can be saved. Uh, and so in that sense, he's he's trying to protect the gospel as he sees it from these sort of secular, um, liberal and progressive, worldly, pragmatic ideologies that he thinks are distorting unity in the church and distorting gospel proclamation. I think in my gut check, I made, it was kind of at least hinted at, it may have been explicit, that in my mind, I had kind of pigeonholed where I would feel like MacArthur would be coming from. Tabidi, what do we know about MacArthur's track record when he has spoken out about these types of issues before? John's been very consistent for 50 years of, of preaching ministry. So if you know John MacArthur from 49 years ago, then you know the same John MacArthur today. Uh, it's a remarkable testimony of, of consistency in preaching the Bible, you know, one verse at a time, uh, being serious about the authority, inspiration, sufficiency of the Bible. He has, you know, sort of waged battle over that, that four or five decades against a number of things that he's seen as encroaching on either biblical authority or gospel faithfulness, um, things from the lordship controversy and the gospel according to Jesus, the battle for the beginning, sort of weighing into disputes about the Genesis account of creation. So he's been a polemicist and sees himself as a defender of Christian orthodoxy for over those five decades, and he's been remarkably consistent in that way. I'm not sure whether John would really, how tightly he would wear the label evangelical. He, he comes really from a more fundamentalist quarter of evangelicalism, if you're going to include fundamentalists in evangelicalism. He's been a pretty consistent and stalwart uh, critic of some weaknesses in evangelicalism, a, a lot of those criticisms being deserved. And so, you know, it's a, it's a testimony of remarkable sort of faithfulness and consistency. The, the problem is, you know, fundamentalism as a movement 
really, in many ways, itself isn't very different from 50 years ago. And so when you come to issues of race and racism and reconciliation, that's really problematic. If fundamentalism is largely of the same character that it was 50 years ago, and 50 years ago, it was on the wrong side of these issues in defense of segregation and things of that sort, or at least passive in the face of those things, then therein lies some of the problem. So there's the sermon series that John MacArthur has preached. There's the um, series of blog posts that he has written that sort of uh, parallels or maybe even rehearses some of the sermon series. And then there's also this statement that has come out. I don't know the provenance of the statement, and maybe, Tabidi, you know more than I do, but it sounds like the statement was sort of suggested by and written by a group that is not solely John MacArthur and may have even been he might have been brought in because his sermons and the blog series inspired it, and he was an initial signatory. But the statement itself that he signed and that is part of this discussion is broader than just John MacArthur. Is that correct? That, yeah, that's correct. And and so to be fair about the statement, yeah, you need to reflect that. As I understand it, there's one of the other signatories is the primary drafter of the statement. Uh, all the original signatories gave input into the statement. So it's kind of a committee process in that sense. Uh, About the time of the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Dallas, I think those folks had a meeting there in Dallas uh, to hammer out, I guess, some of these principles and to to sort of meet together about some of their concerns regarding this thing we're calling social justice and what it means for the gospel in the church. So even before this statement went live, the sermon series and blog posts were really striking a nerve with many in the evangelical community. Tabidi, can you tell us a little bit about the type of reactions that it was getting and why you think that the remarks struck such a nerve? Yeah, I think the, I think the remarks have, uh, whether you're talking about the remarks of the, the social justice statement itself or whether you're talking about some of the remarks in John's blog posts or, or sermons, I don't know that they have struck a nerve as much as they have sort of aggravated a a, a consternation that was already there, which is, I would argue, much older, much, much older than um, John represents in terms of having arisen in the last four or five years. I mean, some of us have been working on these issues for for decades, including someone he names as a friend and respects, our our brother with uh, John Perkins. He's given his life as an evangelical Christian. Uh, to working on matters of reconciliation and and justice, and and so that this is this is not something that's new. So I don't think John's comments cause the the issue or the statement on justice cause the issue. I think they land in the midst of an evangelical movement that is already fraying and fracturing under the weight of the last five years, which is you know if I'm dating this back to say the Mike Brown shooting and the fallout around Mike Brown. Evangelicalism sort of splintered instantly around how they understood that issue as a movement, and different quarters began to sort of circle one another in suspicion and sometimes outright attack. And so uh, we've had about five years of that, and these comments land in the midst of that pot, right? Um, And so the reason it, it aggravates things further in my opinion, is in part because it it seems to be aimed at people who aren't represented by much of the the comments that are that are made. The, the charges just seem to be false with regards to a lot of people. Uh, and secondly, that it's so imprecise 
in in the terms um, that are used and and defining those terms. So, what exactly is meant by social justice? What 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 are we talking about when we talk about reconciliation, or we talk about um, intersectionality, or critical race theory? You know, these are things that are sort of thrown out there, which are kind of red meat, you know, for one quarter of evangelicalism, and and might be acceptable parlance depending on how you define it in other quarters. And so it just takes this these charged words in this charged time and kind of throws it in the midst of a community already fractured and fraying with, without really giving much much specificity and clarity or enough specificity, clarity, and nuance to really be a unifying document or, or an instructive document for conversation going forward. All right. Well, let's actually just talk about those words for a second. Would you be willing to define for us intersectionality and critical race theory? Definitely, like you said, two very charged words that kind of get either thrown around by folks who do not like what those terms represent, whatever that is, um, or also get used to, per, you know, and in, in many, in basically all the way that subcultures use words, you know, to build trust and to build rapport within particular communities. Yeah, I can try, Morgan. You know, it, the I mean, the the honest answer is, you know, I'm I'm one of those folks who's been kind of critiqued or charged. I mean, I I think I'm only I'm one of only two people who've been named by MacArthur, you know, in the course of his blog post, for example. So, insofar as I'm tagged with this stuff, it's kind of funny to me because I spend almost no time reading in critical race theory or intersectionality or things of that sort. I spend my time in the Bible and explicating the Bible. And so my answer to sort of the definitions are, are going to be basic in general, as I understand them, but I'm not, I would not offer these as some kind of expert answer. Intersectionality, as I understand it, is a way of analyzing the world and analyzing a, pla- a person's place in the world by thinking about how various aspects of our identity and social standing actually intersect. So um, I, I am a man. That's one aspect of my identity. But you can't reduce me to just being a man. There's more to it. I'm also an African-American man. That, that has meaning, that, that, that layers in me. I'm also middle class, and I'm also a husband and a father. So you begin to sort of layer in the ways in which parts of my identity, in terms of gender, uh, race, class, age, so on, and, and you begin to sort of define a social location for me. And, and that's defined over and against other sort of social locations. So in, if, with regard to some people, I'm, I'm really very privileged and, and have a certain amount of, of sort of power. Uh, with regard to others, I'm not. Uh, and so intersectionality allows you to sort of think about who people are in a particular context and how they stand in relation to others vis-a-vis things like privilege, power, access, marginalization, oppression, and so on. So for me, intersectionality is just a common sense way of, of, of just sort of saying, hey, complexifying a, a person's existence and, and thinking about the connections with, with other aspects of existence. And that's not hard to see biblically. I mean, just for example, in Acts chapter 16, uh, when Paul and Silas and the team go to set on the way to, to Philippi, well, in verses 1 to 5, they meet a young man named Timothy. The first thing we're told about Timothy, besides the fact that he's a disciple, is that his mother is Jewish and is a believer, and his father is Greek. The next thing we're told is that the Jews in the area uh, probably would not receive his ministry because they knew his father is Greek. 
Well, one way of sort of analyzing Timothy's existence there is in the rubric of, of intersection, intersectionality. Or if you just go, if you go a little bit further, the, the, one, the second person I think they meet when they get to Philippi is actually a young girl who is a slave, who is oppressed by her masters for money, and who is demon-possessed. They, she follows Paul crying out, these men are messengers of God telling you about salvation. Well, you can't understand that young girl without some conception of intersectionality, that she's a girl, not a woman, that she is uh, a slave, not, not like Lydia, a seller of purple, that, that she is oppressed by men in that case. So in my view, and I know that intersectionality touches on a whole lot of other things that I would not endorse and, and, and so on, but at its basic level, that's what it is. It's complexifying our identities and showing how that's connected with other aspects of the world and, and so therefore defining our place in it. So it sounds like it's those, it's those intersections between various like definitional identifying sort of aspects of a person and the way that those overlap and interact is, is, is important to understanding how these things play out and how people feel represented and feel connected to other people and other movements. No, exactly. And especially when, when you didn't sort of say how people are connected to others, critical to the, to the framework are questions of privilege and power, marginalization and oppression, right? So it then moves out to explain how we stand in the relationship to each other in terms of those broad sets of justice concerns. And then uh, that other term that we were mentioning um, a minute ago as well, critical race theory, which also has kind of a broad umbrella. Can you unpack that a little bit? Uh, I can try. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can try. Again, it comes out of the social sciences. And again, it's another way of trying to examine society and culture as it relates to race, law, and power. And so in, in critical race theory, you're concerned about white supremacy, you're concerned about racism, you're concerned about racial power, and how those things are kept in place uh, over time, and how the law in particular plays a role in, in that process of, of keeping those things in place over time. And so the, the sort of goal of critical race theory then, of course, is a, is a dismantling of those things, they're taking a part of law and racial power that taken a part of uh, white supremacy and legal structures in, in order to create uh, a more equitable, just, uh, racially neutral in the sense of racially just or, or fair, or equitable society. Uh, you, get, you get theorists like Derrick Bell and Patricia Williams and others who are kind of at the head of that, that way of thinking uh, about the country. Uh, it, it's worked this way. Uh, across academic fields, again, from political science to women's studies to American studies and, and so on and so forth. But, but it is basically looking at the world with a lens toward detangling white supremacy, racism, and so on from structures of law and power, etc. You know, to be the as you've been explaining this stuff, I'm like, oh, man, do we need to ask him how to define privilege and white supremacy and all these other <laughs> charged terms? How but deep. I am just, you know, for the, for the sake of brevity for this podcast, I was wondering if you could define one more term for us and then I swear we can move on. 
How do you define social justice, since that is literally the term that they use on this statement? Just another gimme. Yeah, (laughs) I appreciate you know really you could do a whole podcast on definitions and and that would be a massive service to this conversation (laughs) because it's the one thing that gets everybody wound up the use of these labels without definitions and it's and it's what causes people to be talking past each other rather than to each other so social justice is another term that that means many different things um, to many different people and that is has made its way into the the sort of common lexicon, a common parlance. And so there's kind of street level and then there's academic level. And, and so lots of people get mixed up in between. Let me give you John MacArthur's definition first and, and then sort of just draw a contrast. MacArthur likens social justice. Uh, he's thinking mainly of its academic use and its secular use. He likens uh, social justice to two things, to socialism. So he sees it as socialism making a comeback. And he, and he likens it, even equates it, I think, to the social gospel. And, and so MacArthur's concern is that social justice is about equality in economic results, equality in terms of the distribution of resources, and, and so on. And, and his characterization of it, it depends a great deal for its moral force on accepting notions of victimization and multiplying victim classes. And for him, intersectionality is about, you know, the, the, the amassing of victim classes so that you might amass moral authority to make an argument for this kind of social justice as socialism and so on. So victimization is a kind of currency. Yeah, in MacArthur's view. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that's his view as I understand it. When I talk about social justice, I'm simply talking about doing the right thing for the right people in the right way, in the right proportion. All right, you'll define right now. (laughs) That's right, as as defined by the Bible, right? So justice, and I I don't often use the term social justice, actually, I just prefer the word justice or maybe even Christian justice. So justice is, is, is righteousness, right? It's, it's equity. It's, it's doing the right thing. And for a thing to be just, it, it has to, it has to be sort of, has to have the right persons in view, and it has to have the, the right results in view. But it also has to be meted out in a, in a proper way. This is what we call procedural justice, right? So we, we, all, we all implicitly value this when we use terms like a miscarriage of justice. What are we talking about there? Well, we're talking about there's been a procedural thing that is integral to what we call justice, a fair way of doing things that hasn't happened. And so we call that we call that you know, a miscarriage of justice. So you, you want to get the right result and you want to get it in right proportion. So again, in the common parlance, we, we say things like this, the punishment must fit the crime. Well, what are we talking about there? Well, we're talking about a sense of proportionality uh, in the results that are achieved. And so we can talk about distributive justice. We can talk about procedural justice. Um, we can talk about the kind of justice that restores and, and repairs reparations and so on. So, so justice is a many-pronged thing, and, and all of those things are in the Bible. So just weights is about a kind of procedural justice, treating the immigrants and the sojourners and the strangers appropriately according to God's word is, is a kind of social justice. And, and so the Bible is full of laws and full of uh, wisdom literature uh, and full of precepts in the epistles and so on that, that give us biblical warrant 
to be very concerned about justice and the pursuit of justice uh, in that way. So for me, it has nothing to do with socialism or the social gospel. It has everything to do with the Bible's ethics and the Bible's ethics supremely expressed in love for God and love for neighbor. So as we're discussing um, this statement and a lot of John MacArthur's remarks, I wanted to make sure that we are doing him justice. You've alluded to a few of his concerns with these terms we've been unpacking. Can you just summarize for us again real briefly, why is he worried about these ideas right now? Well, I, he says he's worried about these ideas because they, they sort of eviscerate the gospel by teaching people that they're victims and that others owe them. And in that victim mentality, you, you basically sap the person's in any sort of impetus for the person to turn to God. In fact, he views this as teaching people to blame God for their condition as victims. He sees that uh, notions of repentance have been sort of decoupled from, unanchored from individual responsibility for individual sins and been attached to sort of corporate responsibility for corporate sins. And he sees that in the gospel of, of sort of personal repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is being replaced with a kind of social gospel, which is about amelioration of social conditions and things of that sort. And then, he's, and then he's, he sees what, what he considers a divisive effect of all of this uh, in the unity of the church. Hey, this is Morgan from Quick to Listen, and today we are talking with Michelle Qureshi. Michelle was married to the late apologist Nabil Qureshi, and the third edition of his memoir, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, is out now. Michelle, have you met or befriended anyone who came to Christ as a result of Nabil's teachings and apologetics? Countless stories from social media and email and texts and phone calls and whatnot. It's been incredible how the book has been utilized in ways that we never envisioned. One particular story that stuck out to me uh, came from a Christian British soldier who had seen the terrible atrocities committed in the name of Islam, and therefore he hated all Muslim people. And he told us his heart was completely changed by the love demonstrated in Nabil's book, and he repented. Michelle was married to the late apologist Nabil Qureshi. The third edition of his memoir, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, is available to order now. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. 
Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. To what extent is some of the fighting, for lack of a better word, that's taking place right now, the result of the church just not doing enough theological work when it comes to really exploring the scope of justice and power and privilege? You know, I, I don't know the extent to which it, it's constantly, well, it, it, it's divisive. I don't know the best word to use here when we start using words that are from one subculture and bringing them to the other. Um, but it, it does feel like that is some of the tension that people see there is a subculture that they don't necessarily assume to be Christian, us using those terms in a very Christian subculture. Yeah, I, I, you're right, Morgan. A lot of this is about language policing, right? And the extent to which it's about language policing, but isn't listening deeply enough to sort of get at the, the user's meaning. Uh, again, it's one of those reasons why we're, why we're missing each other. The, the language of social justice, TGC did a, a post on this a couple of weeks back. Well, that's actually Catholic in origin, in the mid-1800s. Um, so in the broad Christian tradition, that's our term. Um, and, and so, you know, even there, I think if you assign that solely to secular academy, you're doing something ahistorical, and, and you're doing something that doesn't really foster understanding. And, and it is revealing a long sort of conflict in evangelicalism about how we should regard the secular academy, right? So there are some evangelicals who I think wrongly look for approval from secular academies as a way of sort of legitimating their ideas and, and feeling a sense of, of, of accomplishment in those spaces, right? And then there are evangelicals, on, on, again, a more fundamentalist end, who look at everything in the secular academy pretty much from a, a fundamental position of suspicion and can be seen at, at points as kind of anti-intellectual and anti-academic. All of that and things in between swirl around in, in evangelicalism uh, in that way. And for me, what's really important is something that all evangelicals agree on when we read our Bibles. And that is proper interpretation of the Bible requires that we have in mind authorial intent, right? And, and that, that same hermeneutical principle should be used when we read any document, right? So the conversation isn't won or isn't over um, at the language of word choice. Words are important. They have meaning. But the first thing to discover is what does the author mean when they use that term? And then we're on our way to having a, a, a conversation that's built on understanding. And I'm not very good at that myself. I tend to put people in boxes and I hear terms and it immediately triggers a sort of like, oh, I know what that means. I put that in its box and I move forward. Um, and so taking the time to listen seems to be very important. I wanted to highlight another aspect of this that I've been noticing as we've been talking, which is that you mentioned it just now, Tabidi, which was about interpretation. Like so much of this seems to be there. I mean, you even mentioned in a brief Twitter post responding to the to the statement itself that you more or less agreed with everything that was in it. But it's like we've just been talking about it's those terms. But it's also like, how does all this, these basic doctrines that I think we more or less agree on, but it's how do they get applied? How, how does it work itself out? And that's where the split happens mm-hmm. is the one side sees one clear application that is, you know, has almost moral force to it. And then the other side sees a very different application, but we're all looking at the same basic core principles of the same text of Scripture to to pull those principles from. No, I, I think that's right. And so if, if I'm thinking about the social justice statement 
or just to go back a little bit in time and sort of say, take the Ferguson uh, Declaration uh, statement that was meant to be a kind of Black Lives Matter creed written a couple years ago. If I'm just looking at those statements at sort of general abstract theological principle, right, there's much that I would agree with. So if I take the social justice statement, I, I agree about the primacy of the gospel. That, that's not in dispute for me. I agree about the necessity of individual repentance. That, that's not in dispute for me. Uh, I agree that Christ alone saves and, and that we add no work to his uh, lest we, we're preaching a different gospel. I, I, I agree with that entirely. Uh, I would agree that social justice is an entailment of, of the Christian faith. Uh, and the Christian gospel. It, it is not itself the, the message of the Christian gospel. All the conflict in my mind really arises around the so what question. If I take the social justice statement uh, as it's written, and, and I ask myself the question, what posture does this statement seem to create in the reader and the person who adopts it vis-a-vis -vis social justice? Well, it's, it's an allergy to justice social or otherwise. It's, it's a defensive posture that, that I think induces the person to either shrink back or find it pretty morally acceptable to be unengaged in the pursuit of justice, contrary to many a biblical command. And, and so the application there is, is a kind of do-nothingism. I actually don't think that's the posture the Bible creates. The posture the Bible creates is one of leaning into justice. So, for example, in Proverbs 1, verse 3, we're told one of the reasons we're given the whole book of Proverbs is so that we might know how to do justice. Later in Proverbs, uh, the, the text says a righteous man understands justice completely. That's not to even cite, that's the wisdom literature. It's not even to cite the prophets or to cite Jesus, for example, in Matthew 23, 23, when he's saying there to religious persons, Pharisees, listen, you, you're scrupulous about tithing, mint, and dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice and steadfastness, or, or love in, in Luke's version of that, right? So Jesus understands that the deep things of God's commandments is mercy and justice. So we should be creating a positive, leaning forward ethic and, and energy uh, into this with the Bible, as opposed to the kind of retrenchment and retraction and, and backstepping and defensiveness that that statement creates. Now, there's a ton of difference that, that sort of Christians of good conscience could have about application. And a lot of that application needs to be driven by a person's individual sort of location. Uh, and the opportunities they have and the resources that they have. So it's not, I don't think we should ever be striving for a one-size-fits-all. Instead, we want a, a thousand flowers to bloom. But we want our statements to water those flowers and to give nutrient to the soil of those flowers, not to be sort of backing away, I think. With the folks that are concerned about this, this um, leaning towards social justice, leaning into social justice, a lot of the arguments that I see coming from their um, side of the debate sort of makes this move um, that's very similar to, and they even use this language, the law versus gospel distinction. And they, they fear that the social justice is pushing too far into law and away from the gospel, and that we need to be focused on the gospel. And that's sort of similar to the way that um, those law gospel discussions play out, and they're going to refer to Paul and um, Romans and in a variety of other places in his letters. They're going to say that, like, when you've got the gospel right, then then all of that stuff will sort of like come. But the focus for us needs to be on the gospel and not on these these other concerns. Yeah, I think that idea 
sort of reveals two fundamental problems with their framework. The, the, the first problem is really the, the law-gospel distinction. They haven't developed a, a sufficient sort of theology of the law, its place of the law, the, the third use of the law, and, and, and things of those terms. So, so, so it's rhetorically creating this bifurcation, which simply isn't true, right? And, and so we, we understand the law is good. Uh, we understand that there are, there are things that are contrary to the the sort of sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. I'm thinking there, First uh, Timothy chapter one, around verse ten or eleven, where Paul uses that phrase, and he lists a whole bunch of things, including man stealing or slavery, uh, that are contrary to the gospel. But the gospel has a moral standard, right, which is consistent with the law. Um, so we're, we're not antinomians. And and that language risks a kind of antinomianism that, that really just isn't helpful. Secondly, I, I think that that language where you're trying to sort of bifurcate law and gospel in order to sort of segregate the, the audiences, if you will, into people who are pro-gospel and, and pro-law uh, and, and argue that if you get the gospel right, then these other things follow. It, it's that part of the logic that I think is also problematic, too. Elsewhere, one of the posts said something along these lines, that if we understand that we are one body in Christ, then we don't have any problems with racism. That's to make doctrine, uh, merely understanding Christian doctrine, something that necessarily creates the reality that the doctrine is talking about. But between the doctrine and the reality is Christian living and the use of means, right? So, so Paul understands, for example, in Philippians, where he wants Iodia and Syntyche to, to agree together and to be reconciled, he understands that they are reconciled in Christ as a matter of, of doctrine and spiritual reality. But he is not then therefore saying, because of this doctrine, these sisters should just now look at each other and be agreed. He says to the church, help these sisters agree. There's a process there. There's the use of means. There's the, the working out of this unity. In the, in the church with the fellowship of other Christians, or to take Ephesians 4, 3, he says, do everything to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we have that unity in the Spirit, but it's also something we have to work to maintain. And, and what, this, what this document asserts and, and what some other sort of uh, lines and other posts and things seems to me to assert is that if you get the gospel right and, and things that we think are integral to the gospel, uh, like Christian unity, then understanding that doctrine, ipso facto, leads to the living of that reality. And that's just not how it works. That's just not how it works. And, and, and it's why that document and, and much of what's being said by many of the signers actually leaves us with a church that would not make progress on these issues if we were to take their stance. Because there's a whole lot of sweat equity that has to be invested in things like uh, racial reconciliation and Christian unity. It doesn't just come because you believe the right doctrine. I'm just thinking about my own experience in youth ministry. Yeah, there's a huge gulf between what my youth, you know, students believe and the way that they act. And that only serves to reinforce for me how large of a gulf it is in my own life. When I look at them and then I look at myself, it's, there's, there's just such a huge disparity there. And there's so much work to be done. And and in in fairness, I think that the critics of the social justice side, I don't think that they would disagree with that. Or I actually think that a good number of them in their public statements are self consciously saying the opposite. Really? 
Yeah, I actually think that part of what's being said is this is not a problem if you don't make it a problem. I mean, the statement just sort of waves away any notion that there's any racism in any evangelical churches, right? Now, there, there's some word games going on there because they would say, by definition, if there's some racism, then they're not evangelicals. It's kind of the ways that we, we treat evangelical right now. If there's a problem inside evangelicalism, we don't address the problem. We just define the problem as outside evangelicalism, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so there's, there's a fair amount of colorblindness, a fair amount of denial uh, about various things. It, the statement's admissions are tepid, and I think they were they were um, uh, hard won to be included. You know, I, I think there are a fair number of folks on on that side of the equation who are essentially saying the way to move forward on these things is to recognize that they don't exist or treat them like they don't exist, uh, claim our unity, and and just be unified. Um, and and the collapsing of a legitimate victim category, the erasing of that kind of category, uh, is part of how how that how that happens. And I think that's that only sets the church up to to be disrupted again when there's the next major cultural crisis around these sets of issues. We we had better uh, learn to do the hard work of working through these issues theologically and practically and relationally. So that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of culture and every doctrine of culture. You were talking about how John MacArthur's message has stayed more or less the same over the past 50 years of his ministry. And I think you alluded to the fact that during those 50 years, there's been massive changes in American society at the time, not the least of which the civil rights era, which took place, um, but how that didn't necessarily seem to have made any indentation in his understanding of theology. Can you speak a little bit more about how race is playing a role in this larger discussion about social justice? Yeah, I think if you trace John's statements in his blog posts and, and to some extent in his sermons, uh, I think John is, is right to say, hey, we've, we've gone from a time of open, legal, virulent racism to having a civil rights movement that has made remarkable progress toward legal equality over the last 50 years. And then he goes on to say to going to the point where no mainstream person um, would in any in any way condone racism and and that we've gone so far that even sort of social social gaffes and mistakes and and just poorly worded phrases get you labeled uh a racist so i I think he sees the culture has swung too far in the other direction, which is interestingly a weak claim to a kind of victimhood, but we'll leave that for another time so so he sees he describes the progress on these issues in that way. John is also concerned, I think, and, and I think this is a legitimate concern. I think this needs to be stated from, from time to time and, and held on to. Uh, John is concerned also that preachers of the gospel in particular not abandon their primary ministry of proclamation and, and preaching the gospel. So part of what he's, he's holding on to is a, is a certain view of the Christian ministry and the Christian leader. And, and this is where I think his his evoking of his time in Mississippi, the anecdote he tells about being in Mississippi on the eve and the day after of, of Dr. King's assassination and, and traveling to Memphis and standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel, 
this is where I think that anecdote is, is really interesting because he seems to be, if, if I take Phil Johnson's explanation of that incident, the executive director of Grace to You, he seems to be saying, hey, my priority in the 60s was to preach the gospel. And I was doing that even to uh, black high schools in, in the segregated South at a time where civil rights leaders were, were being slain. What he's not saying in that statement, according to Phil Johnson's explanation, is that he was there in solidarity with the African-American leaders of the civil rights movement in opposition to the, the, the sort of segregationist and racist policies of the day, right? There's a kind of do not get entangled with civilian affairs perspective that I think is flavoring his comments about his participation then, or lack thereof, and his emphasis and ministerial uh, participation now and lack thereof. And of course, if, if I'm viewing that as an African-American and thinking about what, it, what does it mean for you to go preach the gospel in segregated Mississippi and not in some way show solidarity to the, the Christian brothers and sisters there who are clearly fighting for a, a, a more just society in keeping actually with biblical uh, ethics, what, what does it mean for you to be there and not express that solidarity? I, I, I have several reactions. I, I think, oh, you know, John maybe is a creature of his own of that period, like many people were, or maybe John is in fact emphasizing the primacy of preaching the gospel, which is a commendable thing. But that that primacy has gotten so big that there aren't important other things to be added to it, like solidarity with um, those who are suffering. I, you know, I, I look at it and I think that's a a spurious definition of friendship because friends are made for adversity. Uh, and Christ calls even his own disciples, no longer servants, but friends, and he gave his life for them. So the gospel would call us into a pattern of laying in our lives for our brethren, of, of entering into their suffering, uh, of standing with them in their hardship and, and bringing mercy. Yes, ultimately in the gospel, but also in very practical displays. So I think he's contending for a, a, a view of the ministry that in some ways becomes escapist in some ways, sort of abstracts itself, it absents itself from these major kinds of injustices in the name of the gospel. But in doing that, it, it fails to live up to the name of love. So I don't understand John to be entirely unconcerned with political or justice things. I mean, he speaks up about abortion. He weighed in on this last presidential election, right? So there seems to be a selectivity in terms of how people are evoking the primacy of the gospel and and the 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 minister's responsibility to preach the gospel. Sometimes it's used to avoid certain issues, and other times it it seems not to be evoked at all as people wade into certain issues. Tabidi, we've had a really great discussion, and I just want to close by talking about church unity for a second, which we know is definitely something that Jesus commands all of us Christians to. I'm wondering if you could just talk about the tension between pursuing church unity and recognizing that we are called also to pursue that with people who may um, mistake unity with uniformity um, and kind of expect us to to set aside our um, cultural differences or otherwise for some other thing that God doesn't actually call us to. Yeah, the pursuit of unity is hard. And and I want to say it's particularly hard if you find yourself as a minority in a in a sort of church culture that you're in, right? So whether you're a, a, a white Christian 
who is in my church, which is predominantly African-American and in a 90% African-American community, uh, you're going to be feeling things and hearing things and working through things in order to fight for unity. Or you're an African-American in a predominantly white context, uh, say on Capitol Hill, just a couple of miles from us, but a really different context. And where we minister, you're going to be hearing things and fighting through things and working really hard to preserve unity. So the first thing to just say is, listen, the, the, the building and the maintenance of unity, particularly a, a deep, informed unity and not just a detente, that maintenance of unity, Ephesians 4.3, requires that we do everything, which means that it's, a, that it's hard work. It's not just something you kind of snap a finger or recite a mantra on and achieve. And I think that's, that, that hard work is going to require a, a few things. Number one, it's going to require some common truth-telling about our history and our lives. We're going to have to paint, instead of bifurcated pictures of each other, we're going to have to try and learn to color together and paint a shared picture uh, and build a common history um, so that we understand how our lives intersect. Secondly, it's going to require what counselors at CCF call a, a judicial forgiveness. Uh, and that is a posture, a readiness to forgive 70 times seven times as our Lord instructs, right? So you got to enter that history telling, uh, truth telling uh, experience ready to actually be seeking and extending forgiveness. And then I think it's going to require what we might call a judicial contrition, that, that we're going to have to learn how to sort of hear others tell us that we are wrong or have been wrong. And we're going to have to learn a kind of brokenness, a kind of weepingness about the things that are wrong and, um, and, and a readiness to not only forgive, but we also need to, to cultivate a readiness to repent and, and a readiness to confess if we want to maintain a deep unity. And then there's, that's how we get to relational forgiveness, right? So the judicial forgiveness is the posture that I have to forgive folks who have offended me. But we're not relationally forgiving and, and reconciling until there's been confession by the persons who have done wrong joined together with that with that forgiveness. And this is how we sort of go from peace faking to peacemaking uh, in this process. <laughs> and, then, and, 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 and then we've got to express solidarity in practical pursuits of righteousness and justice. We, we then have to then stand together as Christ's people, relationally reconciled, uh, and, and express the kind of mutuality that the Bible describes in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, or the kind of sharing that the Bible describes in 1 John uh, chapter 2 or chapter 3, where, you know, we see our brother in need, and, and we don't love him just in word, but we love them in deed also. We are a long way from that in evangelicalism across kind of racial lines, uh, and that's the fight that we've got to make to have a real and lasting unity. And it's not magic. It's rough work. Would it uh, be fair to add perseverance? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and that's hard. Perseverance is hard, <laughs> you know, because there's a lot of fatigue on, on both sides. And there's a lot of fear of being misunderstood or mischaracterized on, on multiple sides. And um, there, there's, a, there's a lot of discouragement that can abound in these times. And, and we have to meet all of that with faith. And we have to perceive that God is doing better and doing more that we actually see with our eyes. Um, and so just as Paul was reconciled with John Mark after uh, they had that split with Barnabas, years later they reconciled. We, we have to believe that God is at work with us to produce deeper reconciliation in his church, even if it, it hurts in the meantime. All right. Well, I think there's a lot of 
food for thought in the discussion that we just had. And Tabidi, thank you so much for sharing all these different words with us and definitions and moving from academia to theology. I think it's been really rich. Um, And as a reminder to folks, if you would like to give us feedback, you can do that by sending us an email. We're at podcasts at christianitytoday.com, or you can go on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and it's when we ask everyone to share something that is currently bringing them joy. Caleb, I yeah, think you have something that you alluded to earlier. Uh, a musical that opens this Friday. It's a musical version of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, it's kind of got a Les Mis sort of flavor to it. It's a lot of fun. I'm the I'm the villain. I'm bad. I'm very bad. Some villains are fun to play because they're <laughs> you know they're sort of like dastardly and sort of like oh yeah you can be conniving. He's just a jerk. He's he's a French aristocrat um, and he just uses people like property and doesn't care and he goes to his grave not caring. He's that one well, dimensional. He's written in a I think he's supposed to be really really despicable, and so it's been a challenge to 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 portray that because I think the audience really has to hate him for the play to work. But, and so, you know, why is that my, (laughs) not necessarily, but what I will say is that, um, uh, I am a people pleaser by nature. And so trying to make people dislike me is, is, is not, um, it's not something that comes naturally. I want people to like me. So I usually roll over and be like, whatever you want. Um, and so trying to be as bad as possible, but why is that my precious moment? Um, it's because it's been really a huge pleasure and uh, privilege and joy to be a part of this, production i'm very excited about it so it's gonna be great can yeah, people find yeah, so you I am, outside uh, of this podcast i edit yeah, a lot yes. of things for uh christianity today magazine um mostly theology articles so if you read something that's got theology above it or theology in it i probably had something to do with that and thank you so much for reading it also you can find me on uh, twitter at ca lindgren and i don't tweet very frequently so sorry about that but you can follow me if you like to every once in a while i'll say something snarky so Oh, man. Um, We have just started uh, homeschooling our sons. Our youngest child is 11. Uh, We had homeschooled him his first couple of years of school uh, while we were in the Cayman Islands, and the church operated a school there. And so about the second grade, he went into the the school in the classroom at the church. And uh, when we moved back stateside, he asked if he could be homeschooled again. And, you know, I asked him why. Now, he was born in the islands, right? And so I asked him, you know, says, when we get to D.C., can I be homeschooled again? I said, well, why? He says, um, well, until I get used to the new island. <laughs> and I yeah. just thought, yeah. said, uh-huh. this, is, this is much bigger than an island. And so he's classic third culture kid. He's had a couple of years at a, at a private, private Christian school, which he's enjoyed. But uh, in this last year, we noticed some things that we want to plug in the way of gaps for him. And uh, I heard someone ask him the other day uh, what he thought about being homeschooled. And, and he said, it's a dream come true. And, <laughs> That's a great review. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and his mom is as excited, well, you know, way more excited. And so I'm just sort of tickled pink watching them uh, enjoy this, this new season and, uh, and uh, playing principal and giving input and uh, praying for them. So right now that's, that's filling my home with a, with a lot of smiles and a lot of joy. That's great. To be oh, yeah. you're not on Twitter it, or anything, are you? Must find me. They can find me. <laughs> they can find me on Twitter or catch me blogging at the Front Porch or over at the Gospel Coalition. My blog there is called Pure Church. 
Uh, and let me say there too, the, the, the bloggers at, um, who have their own blogs at TGC, those blogs are not speaking for TGC. We are all sort of part of the coalition. We love the coalition. But as you might expect, some of us have differing opinions, and uh, the blogs there are meant to be a conversation space for folks. Uh, sometimes TGC, the organization, gets tagged for things I've written, but they're really just my opinion. So if you want to know more about my opinion, uh, you can come over to, to TGC at Pure Church and check me out there. Do you yeah, mind spelling your Twitter handle? B-I-T-I-A-N-Y-A-B-W-I-L. I, I don't know why, but my name ends with an E, but it, it somehow the handle won't let me put it there. So it dropped the E. <laughs> I know how that is. We have a Christian history Twitter account that is misspelled. Same thing. Doesn't fit. <laughs> All right. Um, my precious moment, I'm going to keep it in a similar vein to Caleb as far as live productions go. I went to see a play last week called I Am Juanito Do. And essentially, it was a series of vignettes of Mexican-American life in Chicago. And it took place in this extremely small storefront that was packed with probably like 50 chairs or so. And I think the cast was about six people. And they moved throughout the space that we were in. And even some parts of it went out on the storefront outside. (laughs) And they ran through the streets at some point, which was really really cool and different. They had fireworks, lots of characters eating, and just lots of really interesting experiences that you know exist in Chicago, but you're not necessarily going to find represented in a lot of the Chicago theater world. So it was it was a cool place to be in. And also, I don't really go to that much theater either, so I was glad I could check this out. Another thing about the space is that they are really trying to make it for the community. Um, it's in one of the tougher neighborhoods in Chicago, and so the play itself was pay as much as you are able to. It started at $5 and went up to 15 or 20 if people wanted to pay that much. And they really wanted to just bring in people who live in the back of the yards neighborhood who don't you know, necessarily want to travel 40 minutes to go see a play elsewhere in the city. All right. So people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen We appreciate all of you who go on to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. Thank you for doing that. You can find the podcast, obviously, on Apple Podcasts or most anywhere else that you are looking for podcasts. We are there. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. And thank you, everyone, who is a subscriber of Christianity Today magazine. Again, you can become one at orderct.com slash quick to listen. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.